Happy Father's Day. Glad you're all here today, especially you dads. I'm glad to see you here with us this morning. Glad you didn't decide to stay home and do something different. Very glad that you're here. Thought we'd start this morning with just a little bit of humor before we get into our lesson. There was a young man after getting his driver's license that asked his dad one weekend to borrow the family car. His dad agreed, but he put forward three conditions. He said, number one, you're going to have to keep your grades up. Number two, I want a clean room. Number three, you're going to have to get a haircut. Well, after several weeks, the young man returned to his father and asked to borrow the car yet again. The father decided it was time for a a time of inventory to see how things had been going. And on the first two, the young man had done pretty well. He'd kept his grades up, kept his room clean, but he had not gotten a haircut. So when the father challenged the young man about his haircut, the child's quick response was, but dad, even Jesus had long hair. But the dad, none too slow himself, responded, yeah, and Jesus walked everywhere he went. (laughs) Right? Sound like any of your sons out there, dads? I got a couple of them. I've got a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, and I can't tell you we haven't had a similar conversation at one point or another. But that's one of the fun things about being a dad, right? It's that, uh, that interchange, that banter back and forth between someone who more than likely is too much like you. <laughs> I know I've run into that a few times. I got a couple of boys and, and we're more alike than we are different. And that leads to some interesting conversations and discussions about things. But that's okay, you know, that's what God put me here for. And it's an honor, it's a privilege, and I'm glad to do it. And I hope you are too. I did want to take just a moment this morning to recognize you fathers, and especially to applaud those of you who are here this morning. You made an effort to get up and to come to church on a day that was really set up for your recognition. Uh, But you understand a truth that I think is getting all too infrequent in our culture today. The importance of taking your family to church. The importance of leading your family. The importance of discipling your children. Believe it or not, your children are watching every move you make, every action you make, and every word you speak. And when you got up this morning and demonstrated the importance of coming to gather in God's house with God's people to open his words so that not only you could grow, but your family could as well, that speaks volumes about who you are and what you believe about Jesus. So I want to take just this moment to applaud you for that and to encourage you in what you do. Because it's not easy out there anymore. Our culture is not simple. It is not black and white like I think a lot of us grew up in. Um, Things are difficult. And I want to encourage dads to continue to be the leaders in their families and in their homes. Continue to take that leadership role to make disciples of your children. Don't wait around for someone else to do it. Take that responsibility seriously. Be the person that God put you here to be. Lead your children, grow your children, show them what it means to be a disciple. That's my challenge for you today, and it kind of coincides with the lesson that we're going to look at. In Acts chapter 3, we've been studying here now for a couple of weeks, we've looked at the story of a beggar that was healed by faith uh, by two of the apostles of Jesus Christ. They were Jesus' disciples. A disciple is someone who simply goes out in the name of another. A disciple is someone who has learned from, who has grown from, who has appreciated the teachings of another person and now speaks in their name or speaks in their power. And we saw last week in Acts chapter 3 how Peter and John were at the temple at the time of prayer and they had come into contact, they had encountered a lame man, a man who had been lame since birth, who was begging at the entrance to the temple. 
He was not allowed to enter the temple, to go into the temple, because his lameness made him unclean, and he was not allowed to enter the house of God. But he begged at the door for a gift, for a handout. And Peter says to the man, he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. And he commands the man to rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter gave the man something that he didn't even think that he could receive. He was expecting to get a handout, to get a coin or two, or to possibly get something to eat. But what Peter gave him was what he truly needed, and that was healing, and that was restoration. We saw that last week, and we saw how after his restoration, his healing, he was then allowed to enter the temple because now he had become clean. He was no longer excluded from the fellowship. And to this week, we're going to look now at how the apostles use this opportunity, use this instance of God's activity to use it as an opportunity to share the gospel. They're going to, the crowd is going to gather in amazement to see what has occurred with this healing of this lame man. And Peter is going to enter into a sermon, the first half of which we're going to cover today. And he is going to preach the name of Jesus to these people. He is going to deal with the true healing that they actually need. The lame man needed a physical healing. His legs could not carry him. But we all need, those people need, is a spiritual healing. And it is that which Peter is going to preach to them in this sermon that he's getting ready to begin in Acts chapter 3. And we'll be beginning in verse 11 today. There are a number of things we want to see. We want to see here that the disciple has a role to play. Disciples go out in the name of those who sent them. And in this case, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, have gone out in his name. They represent Jesus now in the world. They are to carry the message of the gospel to the world at large because Jesus has now returned to heaven and resides at the right hand of the Father. They are going to exhibit and set an example for what a Christ follower is in the world, and they will tell a lost and dying world what it is that they need in order to be healed and to be saved. We need to understand from our text today, I hope if we get nothing else that we understand this, that a disciple of Jesus uses the activity of Jesus to proclaim the name of Jesus. That's what this text is really all about today. God is active in this text. God is doing something, and he is doing that something through Peter and John. He is doing it through his people. But the disciples are quick to point out that it is not their power, it is not them that is doing the healing, that is accomplishing the miracle, but rather it is someone far greater greater. A disciple needs to be able to recognize that and direct attention away from himself and toward God because it is God who works miracles. It is God who brings restoration. It is God who brings healing. And it is to him that all praise is due and to him that all honor is due. So with that theme in mind, with that idea in mind, we want to get into our text. We want to begin to understand now three different things that a disciple must do. Okay? Perfect sermon, right? Three points. We're going to go through three things a disciple must do in order to be effective or to fulfill his role as a disciple. Number one, a disciple seizes the opportunity. Remember that a disciple seizes the opportunity. He doesn't let anything escape. He doesn't let anything get by. A disciple is someone who is always on the lookout for the activity of God. Someone who has always has their spiritual eyes and ears open is looking and listening to see what God is doing. Because as disciples know, and as we should know as followers of Christ, when we see God's activity, when that is revealed to us, we need to understand that as God's invitation to us to join him in what he's doing. God shows us what he's doing in advance of doing it so that we can participate in that with him. God is doing the work. He alone is responsible for it, but we cooperate with God 
God, excuse me, <coughs> to carry out his plan and his will in our time and in our place. So a disciple is one who seizes the opportunity in a couple of different ways. Number one, they need to assess the situation. A disciple has got to assess the circumstances of what's going on. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see here in verse 11, while he, the lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Okay, so if you want to set the stage here with me just a little bit and let's understand what's going on. We've already discussed that Peter and John have come to the temple at the time of prayer, about three o'clock in the afternoon. They've encountered a lame man whom they've healed through the power of Jesus Christ. That man has now been restored. They've entered the temple together for the time of prayer. And now our story is picking up where they are now exiting the temple. They are exiting the temple and returning back from where they came. And they gather in a place called Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch or Solomon's colonnade. It uses all of those different words in your particular translation of your Bible. But what this was, was a large gathering place on the eastern side of the temple complex. People would come down out of the temple, they would exit through the court of the Gentiles, and they would come out onto this large covered porch. And colonnade really, I think, is a good description for it. It would have had a series of Roman-style columns that were probably anywhere from 20 to 40 feet tall, lining the whole eastern edge of the temple complex. There would have been a roof over this colonnade, so it would have created an area of shade on the eastern side of the complex. Remember, this is three o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is gonna be in the west. They're on the east side of the building, right? So the sun is shining. They're in a, in a cool, shaded spot. It's a large open area where people would often gather, sometimes for meditation and prayer, sometimes just for fellowship, but it was a large space. It ran the length of the temple complex. So it would have held perhaps thousands of people that would have gathered here. And they have exited the temple now with the man who is clinging to them. He's still celebrating and praising God for what he's done. And he's moving with the disciples as they move across the complex and into Solomon's porch here, or Solomon's portico. And they gather there, and Peter notices the crowd gathering around them. They've seen this man healed. They've seen him sitting at this gate for perhaps years and begging for alms or begging for a handout. And now they have just seen this man in the temple. And as I said, as a lame man, he would have been unclean and not permitted to enter the temple. But he has now gone there and exited there, and the people gathered there have seen this. And they've recognized who he was. And they are utterly astounded, the text says, at seeing this man walk. Crippled from birth or lame from birth, he is now walking. And they are following in this massive movement of people towards Solomon's porch. And they have all gathered there trying to see what's going on. What has happened with this man? What is going on? Who did this? What is going on? And Peter recognizes all of the people gathering around and he knows what's going on. He has his spiritual eyes and ears open. He's listening. He recognizes that the activity that God has just done in this lame man has drawn attention. It has brought astonishment to the crowd. They want to know what's going on. And Peter recognizes this now as his opportunity. It's his opportunity to say something and to proclaim the name of Jesus. Remember, what does a disciple do? A disciple proclaims the name of Jesus by the activity of Jesus, right? So he sees this as an opportunity to share with them the truth about Jesus Christ. He uses an opportunity to share the gospel. He's attentive to what it is that God is doing. 
Now, we can most likely surmise that when Peter left the house that day, that he probably was not, ha, did not have the intention of going to the temple, encountering a person who was lame, healing them, and then using that as an opportunity to share the gospel. But he was watching and he was listening and he was attentive to what God was doing. He made himself available to what God was, wanted to do, and he healed the man. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just offer healing to this man and then walk away. But instead, he recognized that God was seeking to do something through this miracle. God doesn't do these miracles um, you know, on a whim. They always serve a purpose. And Peter recognizes that there's a purpose here, that there's something that God wants to do in a much greater way than just this healing. And this crowd gathering, he, uh, gathering around, he recognizes as the thing that God wants to do. And he sees that he needs to do something. And that's the second part of seizing an opportunity. I have to assess my circumstances correctly, but I also need to act. I've got to do something, right? I can't just let it pass by. I've got to act. I've got to do something. The second part of the verse says, and when Peter saw this, or when he saw the crowd gathering around, he addressed the people. Once he recognized what was going on, once he saw God's activity, once he recognized that it had drawn a crowd, he moved to do something about it. He didn't wait around. He didn't ask John, hey, John, you want to take this one? He didn't wait for someone else to come along and deal with it. He didn't wait for the pastor to show up. He didn't wait for the life group leader to show up or anything like that. He moved. He took opportunity as soon as it was available. He seized that opportunity. He didn't let it go by, okay? There's a thing going on in our country right now because of all the terrorism things that have gone on here recently. Law enforcement has put out this saying. It says, if you see something, say something, right? They want the people of the nation to be attentive to what's going on. If we see something that looks suspicious, we need to make a phone call. We need to let the authorities know. We need to know what's going on. We need to share that with them. If we see something, say something. This is the same thing that's going on here. When you see God do something, do something. Don't just sit around and wait for someone else to come in and take the reins. Do something. God is working through his disciples here. He is moving in a way that he is revealing himself and he is revealing his plan and his intentions for mankind. And he expects his disciples to move with him, to go with him. So when Peter sees God do something, when he sees that crowd gather, he does something as well. He begins to speak. And that's where we move into his sermon now. And we start to talk about what it is that he preaches to the people, what it is that he shares with them and why. So if you look at the next part of our passage here this morning, number two, a disciple is one who speaks the truth. So not only does the disciple seize the opportunity, but he takes that opportunity and he uses it to speak the truth to people. And this is something I think that we have a very difficult time with in our own time today. Many of us are non-confrontational people. We simply do not like to speak truth into people's life. Good or bad, we do not like to share truth with people because we sometimes are afraid of their reaction. We don't want to stir the pot. We don't want to make waves. We just want to not cause trouble. We don't like the idea of speaking the truth. But I got news for you. When you signed on to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you signed up for, was to cause trouble, to make waves, to stir the pot. The gospel always does that. The gospel always makes waves. It always stirs the pot. It always creates tension. It creates division. It creates separation. And that's a good thing. Many of us, I think, have a false understanding of what the gospel is trying to accomplish. The gospel was not meant to draw us all together and make us comfortable in our sin. 
The gospel was to divide us, to separate us, to separate us from our sin. Some will go, some will stay. Some are sheep, some are goats, but the gospel is designed to separate, to cause division, to cause tension, to cause discussion, arguments, all of these things. These are not bad things. And Peter recognizes this in this opportunity. He sees this as an opportunity to share the truth with these people who desperately need to hear it. These people needed to know about Jesus. They needed to hear what their responsibility was in his death. And they needed to hear the promise of what could be theirs if they turned from their sin. So a disciple is one who speaks the truth. He does that first by correcting false assumptions. Okay, if you look at the next few verses there, it talks about a number of false assumptions that the crowd had made about this miracle that had occurred this, this afternoon. In uh, verse 12, Peter addresses the crowd and says this, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? What are you looking at us for? We didn't do this. Why are you staring at us? We don't have the power to make this happen. That's the first thing that a disciple has to do is correct false assumptions. When you speak truth into someone's life, when you share the gospel with them, any of those things, it's not you that is speaking. It is God speaking through you. Remember that. When you share the gospel with someone, it is not you speaking. It is God speaking through you. The words come from your mouth, but the truth and the power is in the gospel itself coming from the spirit of God. You have to correct false assumptions. What would happen here if the disciples had taken, had taken the glory for this rather than attributing it to God? Well, it's hard to say. But through their, through their correction of what the people thought here, a man was healed. And many more would probably come to faith. So we have to correct false assumptions. Peter immediately corrected them. He didn't take any glory for himself. He didn't try and share in the glory that was only due to God. He didn't say, oh, well, this wouldn't have happened without me. I mean, it was God's power, but if I hadn't been here, right? Isn't that what a lot of us do? We know that God is really the power source, but we try and cooperate with God in such a way that we get some of the credit. If I hadn't shown up there, if I hadn't said this, if I hadn't done that, God never could have accomplished these things. That's a false statement. God can accomplish anything that he wants to in spite of ourselves if he wants to. Peter rightly directed the people's attention away from himself and directed it toward God, where it rightly belonged. He corrected their false assumptions. Many of us understand the consequences of making false assumptions about things. Uh, I've learned that lesson, unfortunately, the hard way a number of times in my own life. Uh, I'm not going to share any of those stories with you, but I'm going to give you a hypothetical instead, okay? Fair enough. I'm a home builder by trade. You guys know that. We, when we begin a house and we dig a foundation for a house... We want to lay a firm foundation for a house. We want to set the foundation of the house on solid ground so that that thing never moves, so that it doesn't crack, that it doesn't come apart, that it doesn't fall apart over time. We want to set that house on a firm foundation. But that firm foundation is not based on an assumption. We don't just dig a hole in the ground and hope for the best, right? That would be a false assumption. I could dig the hole and hit an underground spring. I could hit a sinkhole. I could hit a puddle of quicksand. We don't just dig a hole and hope for the best. We get a soil test. We have somebody check and make sure and verify that that soil is good, that it can support that house. And if it can, what we need to do to the foundation in order to make it suitable for supporting that house. Because if I was to make a false assumption and just build that house on any old unshaky ground, what would quickly happen to that house? 
it would quickly fall apart, wouldn't it? So false assumptions can have very detrimental consequences. Detrimental consequences in the story here of Peter sharing the truth with these people. Had he tried to take glory for himself, the gospel never would have been preached and people never would have been saved. People would have been turned away from Jesus instead of hearing about Jesus the way God intended. There are detrimental consequences to not sharing the truth and to not correcting false assumptions. Secondly, as in speaking the truth, I need to confront sinful actions. Probably our least favorite part of our job as disciples. Confronting someone's sin is never pleasant. It is not something that's enjoyable and most of us hate it. But it is something that God has called us to do. Because if we don't share the truth with people, how will they know? If we don't share the truth with people, how will they know? They won't. We have to confront their sinful actions. Not because we are suitable to be judges of them. We're not any better off than they are. We're sinful people as well. But instead, God has sent us to confront sinful actions so that people can turn from that sin and be saved. In the passage that we see here, Peter outlines a number of sins that the members of the crowd have committed. And he uses some very strong language to do that. But every one of them is true. He speaks the truth to them so that as we'll see in next week's message, they have an opportunity to repent of it. But how can they repent if they do not know? They cannot know unless someone tells them. That's why part of being a disciple is speaking the truth. Verse 13, about the middle of the verse there, it says, Jesus, the one whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Those are some very strong statements he makes there. Nothing simple about that. These are some very grievous sins. And he lays every bit of it right at the doorstep of the people of the crowd. These hundreds or perhaps thousands of people who have gathered around in this porch to hear him speak and find out what happened with this lame man have now just been castigated for their sin and accused of a crime that they had no idea they were guilty of. Remember, the Jews didn't think that they were doing anything wrong in the crucifixion of Jesus, did they? They thought they were crucifying a blasphemer. They thought they were on the side of God in what they were doing. But Peter here turns the tables on them and tells them, no, they've committed a grievous and horrible sin, that they have killed the author of life. Peter rebukes the crowd. He rebukes them for what they've done. He proclaims the name of Jesus and said, this is the one that you killed. The one through whom this healing came of this lame man is the one that you killed. And he sets up this contrast in the passage between two different groups. Between the Jews who are in the crowd who have gathered there, who have killed Jesus in the crucifixion, and all of the other parties that are involved in the crucifixion. And he sets up this back and forth contrast with them to show them the error of their ways and the sin that they have committed. The Jews denied and delivered Jesus over for crucifixion when Pilate had determined to set him free. Pilate had already determined to set Jesus free. He found no fault in him. He found no cause in, the, in, in crucifying him. He had determined to set him free, but the Jews refused. They denied him and delivered him over to Pilate. In spite of his wanting to set him free, they demanded a crucifixion. Contrast number one. Jews denied the holy and righteous one meaning the one who was innocent of any wrongdoing, but instead asked for a murderer to be set free. Contrast number two. They didn't want the author of life. They didn't want the holy and righteous one. They didn't want the innocent one. They didn't want God's servant whom he had sent to save them. 
Instead, they ask that a murderer be set free. The one whom God sent to save lives, they denied and delivered over for crucifixion and instead asked for a murderer to be set free. Contrast number three, the Jews killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. They killed him, but he could not be held by death. The Jews killed Jesus on a tree, but God raised him from the dead and exalted him and seated him at the right hand of God. There's this contrast here that is determined to show the people the error of their ways. When we encounter people in our own lives that we need to confront them in their sin, this is the attitude that we need to have. We need to understand that if we do not speak truth into their life and identify what their sin is and contrast that with the activity of God, that they're never going to turn from their sin. They're never going to move from the place in which they are. We must speak truth to them. If we can't help people see what's wrong with them, how can we ever expect them to change? We can't. Let's look at the flip side of the coin then. So if we need to confront sinful act actions, there's something else that we need to do as well. And that is we need to communicate God's activity. We don't just judge people and then leave that there hanging in the air and walk away. There has to be something else that we speak into their life, some other truth that we bring into their life. What God is doing and what God intends to do is that other thing. We confront their sin and ask for repentance, but we show them and tell them and communicate to them what God has done for them in Christ. And that's what Peter does in the other part of this verse. If you go back to verse 13, we kind of took the middle section first and now we're going to address the ends. Back in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers. Peter identifies the covenant God that these men of Israel would have known. This is the, the, the covenant God all the way back from the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures. The one who brought them out of Egypt, the one who entered into the covenant at Sinai, the father of the, the God of the patriarchs. But he moves it right on down to saying the God of our fathers, the God that you and I have worshiped, that same God, that same one that we have always known glorified his servant Jesus. You killed him. You put him on a tree. You forced Pilate's hand, but God glorified him. He raised him from the dead and he exalted him. And that's what's meant to be seen here in this passage is the exaltation of Jesus Christ above all other people. God sent Jesus, it says, as a servant, a lowly person, someone who was sent here to serve mankind. How much more could you serve mankind than to come and to die for all of mankind? God's servant came to earth. He was incarnated as a man. He went to the cross. He died that sacrificial death for each and every one of us. God raised him from the dead. Death could not hold him. God raised him from the dead. So what? So that we may inherit eternal life. Peter says to the people in this passage, the one that God sent to save you, the Messiah that he sent to deliver you, you killed him. You murdered him. This is the sin that you're guilty of. And lest we think that these strong words are only for the Jews, we need to understand that these words also apply to us as well. Each and every one of us who calls Christ as Savior is guilty of the same thing, of putting Jesus on that cross. Our sin, each and every one of us, each and every sin was enough to send Jesus to that cross and to die that death on our behalf, on our part. We need to be willing to explain to people in our world who are lost, who are separated from Christ about their sin, what they've done, what it means, and what is required in order to be restored to God. We have to be willing to speak not only the truth about their sin, but communicate to them what God has done for them as well. 
It's not only that God holds their sin against them and wants to punish them and send them to hell. A lot of us or a lot of people have that view that God is a, is a mean God and he only wants to punish sin. How could anything be further from the truth? God sent Jesus to die for each and every one of our sins. Right? So Peter has explained them to, him, to them here, what you have done is a horrible and grievous and almost unforgivable thing. Yet God in his mercy and grace has done something for you. He has exalted that one. He has raised that one from the dead whom you killed. Death could not hold him. If Jesus had stayed in the cross, the sin debt was never paid. Or if he'd stayed in the grave, the sin debt was never paid. That's an interesting thought. If he wasn't resurrected, that debt was never paid. We're still dead in our sins. Peter says here that God has done something for you in Jesus of Nazareth. He has sent him to the cross to die for your sins. He has now raised him from that, from that grave and he has exalted him. He has put him above all others. There is no other above Jesus Christ. God has made this provision for you. So we communicate God's activity in order that we can help people understand what it is that God has done. It's interesting. I think if you spend a little time thinking about this as I did, I, it kept bringing up memories or allusions to the Genesis 50 passage in the story of Joseph. I keep reading through that passage. It keeps popping up all over the place for some reason. I'm still figuring out what it is God wants me to get out of that. But it keeps popping up everywhere. And specifically, it's verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I, that just jumped off the page at me in this passage here from Acts chapter 3. What the people had done, they meant for evil. They intended to kill who they thought was a blasphemer. They wanted him destroyed and hung on a cross, murdered right there before their very eyes. True bloodlust at its, at its lowest point. But it's interesting that that was God's plan all along. God would use that event to save millions and millions of people. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We must not only condemn sin on the part of lost people, but we need to elevate and proclaim the goodness of God and his activity in our world as well. So a disciple is someone who needs to seize the opportunity, someone who needs to speak the truth into the life of the people that he encounters. But a disciple has to be someone that steers people toward Jesus. Okay, there's no other thing, there's no other name, there's no other person. A disciple has to be someone who steers people toward Jesus. And he does that here in the end of... Uh, chapter 3, or in the end of our passage in chapter 3, in verse 16 that we're going to look at here for the rest of our message. This is an incredibly difficult verse. If you look at it there just in your own Bible, the language structure alone is very difficult. Uh, if you take a look at it in the original language, it's worse. And as someone who's studying the original language right now, it's giving me fits. But it is a difficult verse, but there are some very important truths here. I spent probably more time with this than any other part of this message trying to dig out just exactly what it is that the Spirit is trying to communicate through this one lone difficult verse. And it is this. A disciple needs to steer people toward Jesus. There are three principles that we want to look at in this verse and try and understand and apply in our lives as disciples. You're going to see here first that there are two concepts in this verse that are side by side. They, are, they seem to be co-equal. Name and faith. Name and faith. They appear over and over and over in the verse. 
That is the emphatic part of the verse. That is what we are to key in on. When you're studying scripture, reading scripture, and words are, are repeated, particularly concepts like this, pay attention. God is trying to get your attention. That is why that is repeated like that over and over and over. Name and faith. So we want to explore exactly what is going on here in name and faith. Let's just read the language first and then we'll break this down a little bit. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay? What we have is two parallel statements that are communicating a couple of different truths about God and what he has done through Christ. Remember, the people are gathered in the porch. They're listening to Peter preach because they want to know what has happened to the lame man that is, they've just seen walking around, that they've just seen in the temple. They want to know what's up. Peter is trying to communicate the truth of what has happened. Remember back in verse 12, he told him, it isn't us. We didn't do it. Don't stare at us. We're not responsible for this. Here, he directs their attention to who is. He directs their attention toward Jesus. He says, and by faith in his name. That refers all the way back, if you remember last week's message, all the way back to verse 6. Whose name? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's who he's talking about. By faith in that name was this man healed. Okay? By faith in that name was this man healed. And secondly, the way in which that he was healed was through faith in his name. So we've got three different things there that we need to examine. We want to take a look at this. Number one, let's see the foundation for faith. Okay, the foundation for faith is the name. Now, the name of Jesus in the Bible is more than I think it probably implies at the beginning when you just say name. The name was meant to be a symbol of all that Jesus Christ was. All that he did, all that he taught, all that he said, all that he lived, all of these different things. It was a symbol the name. It was a symbol for Christ. Right over there is an American flag. That is a symbol, right? That it's not just a flag and it's not even just an American flag. It is a symbol. A symbol of what? Of the United States of America. What it stands for. What it believes. How it acts. How it behaves. For some, it's a symbol of freedom. For some, it's a symbol of power. For some, it's a symbol of wealth. It's all of those things and more. It's a symbol that encompasses all that is America, right? This is a loose analogy here, but the name is similar for Jesus. The name encompasses and symbolizes all that Jesus is. Everything that he is, who he is, what he believes, what he taught, what he said, what he did, what he came here for. The name is simply a symbolized reference to Jesus. And in this passage in verse 16, we see that the name is the basis or the foundation for faith. Okay? This basis, this foundation, this is what accomplished the healing. The name did it. Now, that seems odd to speak of it in that way, doesn't it? In the third person. The name, the name did it. Well, no, Jesus didn't. No, that's not what the text says. The text says the name did it. The symbol, the name is responsible for the healing. Okay, hold on to that thought for a minute. The foundation for faith is the name, but the second part is the function of faith. Okay, the second part of the verse. By faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. So the foundation or the power for the healing is the name, Jesus. But the function of faith is the healing. The power, the name, 
has accomplished the healing. That is the function, okay? Or what we see. We're going to picture this. Let's picture this this way. Let's picture the name Jesus as a battery. Let's picture the healing of the lame man as a light bulb. If I connect the battery to the light bulb, I'm going to get light, right? If I don't connect them, no light, right? Okay, so what is the operative thing that makes the light bulb light, that connects the battery to the, to the light bulb? It's faith. Jesus is the foundation. He is the power cell. He is the source. The healing of the lame man is the effect. It is the goal. It is the object. But something appropriates that. And the thing that appropriates that is faith. It's the connecting wire, if you will, or the conduit. It is the thing that connects the power source to the object that it is affecting. By faith in his name was the miracle accomplished. Okay? That is the way in which it was done. So the foundation for faith is Jesus, the name. The function of faith is the healing. For the lame man in our story, it was a physical healing. He was lame and now he walks. He was healed. He was restored. For others, for us, it is a spiritual healing. Okay? God is still healing physically. Don't misunderstand. And he does that in a number of ways. And I still believe that God works out physical miracles in people's health. But predominantly today, God is in the business of healing people spiritually. And he does that through Jesus. Where does faith come from? From Jesus. How is faith appropriated? Through Jesus. It all comes from, is appropriated through, and results in Jesus. So the function of faith is the healing. Like I said, for the layman in the story, a physical healing. For us and others, it's a spiritual healing. It's something that needs to be corrected, something that is not right. For the people, the crowd who were listening, they weren't going to get a physical healing. What Peter was offering them was a spiritual healing. Through faith in his name, you can be spiritually healed. You can be spiritually restored to God. You can be restored to God even in spite of the sin that you committed in killing the one he sent to save you. How about the form of faith? That's the last little part of this puzzle here. That's that connecting wire or that conduit that connects the battery to the light bulb. It's the part that makes it happen. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. Okay? A faith that is live, a faith that is through Jesus is what he's talking about. This is how Peter is going to connect their relationship to the healing of the lame man. It isn't their power that heals the man. That's the power of Jesus. But it is their faith through which God works, through which Jesus works to heal the lame man. Okay? It's important that we get that. I think a lot of the time what's in view in this passage is that it was the faith of the man that restored him. It was not. It was the faith of the disciples that restored the man. It was their uh, commitment to Christ, their faith in Christ that he worked through to accomplish this miracle. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't work through the faith of other people. But in this instance, in this verse, it is through the disciples' faith that God is working. Peter was the conduit, or more appropriately, his faith was the conduit 
through which God worked. And Peter says, this is the way in which we're connected to this miracle. That no other way. It is not our power, not our ability. I think he used the word power or piety in the first verse that we talked about. It is not our power or piety, but rather it is the faith that is through Jesus. So Jesus works through the process of faith to bring about healing. That is no different than how he works through healing, spiritual healing in you and I. We, as lost people, the Bible calls us spiritually dead. We are in need of healing, or more appropriately, restoration or life. We are dead. Through faith, God imparts that to us. Does he impart that through my faith? No, because I don't have any. I'm spiritually dead apart from Christ. But God works through the faith of a speaker, a preacher, a teacher, whoever it is that shares the gospel with me, and that power is appropriated through that faith of that person in sharing the gospel to me and then returns back to God from me as faith in him. That is the truth that Peter is trying to communicate here to this crowd, that God is offering them something that they cannot attain on their own. And that that thing that they cannot attain on their own is spiritual life. And it is belief in Jesus and it is spiritual restoration to God the Father. And that it is available to them. That it is available now, even though they cannot bring it in and up of themselves and lift up to God. He is saying that this healing is available through our faith to be shared with you. And that's, believe it or not, how all of these interactions that we have, all these gospel interactions that we have occur. God works through the words of a preacher or a speaker in the gospel to impart new spiritual life. That spiritual life does not reside in the person, but yet it comes through the power of the gospel to awaken them spiritually, and they then respond. It's what we call regeneration, if you're familiar with that term. But it's the same thing that's going on, and it's the same example that I was giving you with the battery, the conduit, and the light bulb. Jesus is the source of faith, Life, power, all of these things. But as a battery, not connected to anything, it's not doing anything. You and I as lost people are that dim light bulb sitting over here, unlit, offering no light in the world. But God, through the gospel, through the speaking of a preacher, a teacher, a faithful disciple, sharing the gospel, sharing that truth, Jesus' power now is connected to that lost person, to that light bulb, and it lights up. And it comes to life. Okay? It's an interesting way of looking at it. I'll be honest with you. I spent many hours looking at these 14 words. But I believe that's what's being communicated. Uh, Peter here is steering his crowd toward Jesus. He is showing them how this miracle was done. How the miracle is available to them. What they need to do. Next week, we're going to look at a few other concepts and a few other things that they need to do. But what we see here is the basic parts of the gospel message that Peter has communicated. As a faithful disciple, he has faithfully and honestly communicated the truth of who his crowd is, who his hearers are, and what they need to do in order to be healed, in order to be restored, or in order to be saved. So our illustration with the battery works well. We see Jesus as the battery. That's that potential energy sitting over here, not connected to anything. But when connected via conduit to that light bulb, it now becomes kinetic energy. It's alive, it's active, and it makes something happen. You, as disciples, are that conduit. 
You are the ones responsible for taking that potential energy that Jesus is offering and making it kinetic and going out into the world so that the gospel will penetrate the entire world. The world we live in is a dark world. There is not a lot of light in it. It begs for light. It needs that light. Faithful disciples are ones who will share that light, who will go out in that world and communicate that truth so that lights will go on. If you can imagine, most of you have probably been to a concert of some fashion or another. You ever been to a concert when everybody holds up their phone and turns the light on in the dark auditorium, right? Imagine that is how God sees our world down here. It's a dark place. There's no light in it. But every time the gospel is shared and someone responds to that gospel message, it's like that light on a phone goes on. First a point here, then a point there, and then maybe two or three here. But over time, as we are faithful in our mission as disciples, and we share that message more and more, a few more lights go on. And God is sitting there with just joy, excited over what it is that we're doing every time a point of light pops on. Every time that power of Jesus is harnessed and brings to life one more person, God celebrates. It says the angels rejoice in heaven. Every time a point of light pops up. I wonder what it would look like in this room if we were to turn the lights out and put a light over everyone in here who knew Jesus as Savior. Do you think we could see across the auditorium? If we were honest, would there be enough light in this room to light this auditorium? There should be. That's our responsibility. If we call ourselves disciples, that's who we're supposed to be conduits for the power of Jesus into a dark world to bring to light the faith in people. If you call yourself a disciple, you have to be that person. You have to look for those opportunities. You have to seize that opportunity. What opportunities are there out there? Well, they're everywhere. I, I had a conversation with a guy just a couple of weeks ago, works on my job. He's had a, he's had a rough go the last two or three years. He's had two bouts of cancer in the last three years. He's come through both of those bouts of cancer successfully. The doctors tell him he's completely healed and he is beyond joyful, okay? <laughs> Let me explain, beyond joyful. But we had a conversation the other day. He says, I, I know God is out there. I know God brought me through this. I, I know he's got a plan for me, but I don't know what it is. Is that an opportunity for me? Sure it is. When you see God working in someone's life, when you see God moving and stirring someone's heart, that is your opportunity to join him, to get with it. When God moves someone to start asking those kinds of questions, clearly he is doing something there. Clearly he wants someone to say something. We have to be disciples who seize that opportunity. Don't let it go by. I could have handed him off to somebody else. I could have waited for his pastor to handle it or whoever it was. But that was my opportunity. And you better bet that I shared the gospel with him that day. Because that is his purpose in life. That is God's plan for his life that day. We have to be that kind of people. We can't be the kind of people who sit in here and gather on Sunday and keep it all to ourselves. We've got to get out there and share that truth. Put that potential energy into work. 
Make it kinetic energy. Make it active. And start seeing those lights popping up all over the world. That's who we have to be as disciples. That's who you've been called to be. The question is, are you a disciple? If you are a disciple, then the question becomes, what is my next step? What do I need to do now? Am I being all that God has called me to be as a disciple? Am I faithfully executing the commission that he has given me? Or have I maybe been dragging my feet a little bit and sitting on the sidelines and letting some others take the reins? To mix my metaphors there. Or am I the person who is charging headlong into the commission that God has given me? What do I need to do? Do I need to get off the sidelines? Do I need to get in the game? Maybe you're not a disciple. Maybe you don't even know Jesus. There's going to be an opportunity here for you in just a moment to be introduced to him. But that's my question for you. Are you a disciple? And if so, what is your next step? Let's pray.